And this time the microphone is on, <laughs> so we'll actually start with the recording. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we give you hearty thanks that you have sent the Holy Spirit to us and that he has called us through the gospel, enlightened us with his gifts, and sanctified and preserved us in the true faith. We ask that you would graciously permit his power to continue to dwell richly among us. Bestow this power upon all preachers and teachers that they may rightly proclaim your word, adding nothing to it and taking nothing from it, and not withholding the saving truth either from fear or to please people. Give the word proclaimed, this is written for Saturday night, but give the word that's proclaimed fruitful soil in our congregation and our church. Bestow your spirit's enlightenment upon all hearers of your message that they may bow before your judgment and rejoice in your saving gospel. Grant these gifts to all who desire holy baptism and receive the Lord's Supper and give all people the renewal that comes from faith and Christian life. Let the seed of your word grow here on earth for our salvation, and through it, prepare us for your eternal harvest through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I do update the language and such, you know, with the prayers. There are a lot of these and thous, and I try to make it more like we would actually speak, um, which sometimes isn't easy. Um, it, some of these prayers are like really beautiful, the way that they're put together with the older language, and you kind of lose something, you know, by bringing it into a more modern way of talking. But this comes from a, a, a book that was called uh, Orate Fratres, which means pray, brothers. Uh, and, and they apparently sourced it from, I'm not even going to try to say it in, in German, but uh, uh, everyday morning prayers. And I think that, um, I think there's value in some of these old prayer books, um, our culture seems to really uh, appreciate the new and the novel. And I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily anything new or novel, actually. Um, you know, I think history has shown that people are always kind of, you know, looking at what's, what's next or, or whatever. Um, but uh, we are not the first to walk in the faith. And, and I think that there are there are things to be gained from looking at the prayers of those who have gone before us and you know in some ways what's to be gained is it's still the same you know so we're going through a time that is in some ways unique in terms of the whole coronavirus and uh, um, the, the challenges that that brings but in other ways the church has done this before And we just learn from that and press on in the hope that Christ has given to us. So one line did jump out at me in that second paragraph where it says, give the word proclaimed tomorrow, um, fruitful soil in our congregation and our church. Did you, did you catch that distinction? Congregation is us, church is the whole. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a, a board of directors meeting on uh, for the Ohio district on um, Thursday and Friday. They're usually just one day. Um, 
but uh, there were representatives of the whole synod that were going to be there. So the, our church body is called a synod. Synod means to walk together. Latin, I don't know. Um, some, some other language is where that comes from. And uh, you know, so this idea is that we have a confession of faith and we walk together in that faith. And uh, um, so we had, if synod is the whole body, that breaks down into districts. And we're in the Ohio district, which is uh, Ohio, West Virginia, and uh, the part of Kentucky that's right next to Cincinnati. And then that breaks down into um, regions. And I'm the vice president in the Ohio district of the north central region, which is kind of weird. It goes kind of up by Avon and makes an well, that makes a, an elbow anyhow that goes over to Youngstown and cuts out the corner by Cleveland and Ashtabula. Um, that is weird. It, it, no, it's really strange. Um, and uh, the guy who has Columbus also has all of West Virginia, so I'm not complaining. Um, and, uh, and, and then that gets broken down into circuits, and circuits are about 12 congregations. Okay, and you know, and you have these different people with different responsibilities, you know, in, in that that system. And almost all of us are, are pastors and congregations, as well as you know these other um, positions that we might hold. But um, at that top level, that's yeah. Is, is the English district still embedded in the Ohio district? There are, um, I believe, two what we call non-geographic uh, districts, yes. The English district is one of them, and um, the SCLC, the Slavic, uh, or Slovak, excuse me, um, it used to be the Slovak Synod, they joined the Missouri Synod and became the Slovak district. And uh, so, yeah, they're, they're all across the United States, and, you know, we'll have a... Um, uh, Fairborn, uh, not Fairlawn Lutheran Church. Well, was that a revolt against the German? No, um, it wasn't a revolt so much as just a recognition that there were two streams that were running parallel to each other. So when you go back to the 1840s and 50s, um, when the founders of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod came over from Saxony, um, they came over on steamships um, uh, to New Orleans and then up the Mississippi River, and they found what they considered to be paradise just <laughs> south of uh, St. Louis. And having lived in St. Louis, I assure you it is not paradise. <laughs> it is way too hot and muggy there. Um, and, uh, and so uh, they, they set that up, and these, they were Saxons. They are all German speakers. C.F.W. Walther, the first president of the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, was very active trying to gather all of these uh, particularly German-speaking Lutheran churches you know, into kind of a body, a, a fellowship. Okay? Um, I don't know that he necessarily had anything against you know, the Danes or the, you know, the Swedes, or, you know, but you had a language barrier, and that was kind of common back then. And, uh, you know, so he, he started gathering these Lutheran churches and they made a, a kind of a, a fellowship and, and, uh, and, and that was the, uh, the founding of, of our church body. 
and everything was done in German. You know, they would have all the pastors spoke it, they preached it, the, you know, the, the whole kit and caboodle. And uh, um, eventually, as the United States grows, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, believe it or not, has always been a evangelical church body in the sense that we want to reach people. So when I was in the Michigan district, one of the things that uh, was very forefront in, in the um, kind of the, the, the pride of, of, of that district is Frankenmuth and Frankentrost and Frankenlust. All of those Franken uh, villages over kind of by the thumb uh, used to be Native American settlements and the Missouri Synod sent missionaries that would work with the Native Americans to share the gospel with them. And there was, there was really good stuff that was happening there way back. You know, um, I was just listening to a, a history of Concordia College, Selma, Alabama, uh, a, a school that sadly closed now. Um, but uh, this was uh, founded through work with the, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, reaching out to former slaves in the area. Uh, there was a lady by the name of uh, Rosa Young who was very passionate about um, teaching uh, former slaves and the children, you know, the former slaves in the turn of the, this, not the turn of this century, but the previous century. And um, she actually went to Booker T. Washington and says, you know, hey, I want to start some schools. And he says, why don't you go talk to the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod? They're all about that. You know, so, you know, there, there used to be all of that. So you have this expanding and you have these different cultures that are becoming part of a confession, part of a larger church, but they don't speak the language. My pastor had to learn German, you know, to be a pastor because, you know, the... the just the assumption was that you can read the confessions in the original languages. But as more and more people tie on, they're like, no, I think we'll take this in our language. Thank you very much. You know, and I'm sure you've noticed how many, many Americans speak multiple languages. Not many. <laughs> we're, we're not very good about this. You know, it's English only, you know. And, uh, and so there were churches who are saying, you know, we'd like to just do the whole thing in English, please. <laughs> Which makes sense, you know. This was kind of the thing with the Reformation, too. Luther says, um, we're not doing the Mass in Latin anymore. We're, we're going to do this in German so people can understand it. You know, and, uh, and, and so, the, you know, the German Missouri Synod people looked and said, that's fantastic. Let's help you set up a synod. We'll call you the English Synod because you speak English. And it was about that language not you know the background and you know these are a lot of them were people who grew up speak you know their ancestors would have spoken german in the home but as they become amalgamated into american society they lose the language and you know but they still have the faith and they're just kind of doing their thing and eventually you know even the german speakers are like we're not able to maintain this the congregation that I grew up in, uh, Trinity Manistee, was one of the last congregations in Michigan to offer a, um, a German-speaking Christmas Eve service. But it was only Christmas Eve. And we brought in a different pastor to do it. <laughs> and how well was it attended? 
It was very well attended, actually. People would kind of come from hither and yon, um, and uh, and I think it mostly was because of the music um, that we learned songs in, in in German. We learned Christmas carols in German, and it was an opportunity to to sing those you know songs in in that language. And there was kind of a heritage thing with that too. Gloria Day had a, a Slovenian pastor as a member. Okay. And he would lead occasionally uh, a Slovenian service. And he would translate into English as it went along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, St. John uh, Akron down on Wilbeth Road. Um, I believe it's Slovenian. And uh, there's a, a kneeler. Uh, that's right in front of the altar, and I don't remember what the verse is that's on it, uh, but it's in Slovenian, and it's something that they brought over. And there's this chair; it's like made of marble. It's kind of a pinkish. I'm like, oh, we brought that over from. The thing weighs like a thousand pounds or something crazy, you know. But yeah, you know, we bring the, these cultures with us. And they tend to divide us, and that's you know where that English district thing comes from. Um, but then, the faith is what then unites. It, that was really convoluted. Thanks for asking that. <laughs> where, where did the English district come from? And, and the Slovaks in it at the same time, really, because they're, they're the same same type of a story. Um, so. This is going back to this uh, line about congregations in church. So I was at this meeting, and um, districts have presidents, vice presidents, and boards of directors, and the same thing's true at the, the synodical level. And uh, we had the, the vice president for the synod and the vice president for our area uh, there at that meeting, and they were presenting. And one of the things that they talked about was how we talk about the synod is you know, the synod does these things as though we weren't part of it. You know, we look at the bureaucracy that's kind of located in um, in St. Louis, and it's there, there's kind of a sense of us and them. But if you're a synod, it's actually just us. And that's one of the things that they were really stressing. And, you know, so when it says our congregation and our church, it's the recognition that we're part of something bigger than just what happens here. You know, what happens here matters too, but we have an eye that says, you know, we have brothers and sisters that are out there that are you know, engaging the same mission who are held by the same hope that, that we have in Jesus. And I think that that's a, a good reminder that, you know, when we pray, um, like even the, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the first word of the, of, uh, the Lord's Prayer is? Our. Our, yeah. It, you know, and it has all, it, well, I shouldn't say always, but it has, for a long time in my life, it struck me, you know, just thinking about, you know, dawn and people gathering for, for worship, you know, in England, they're already, you know, home having lunch or maybe even dinner. I don't know what the time breakout is, you know. But um, they prayed that, you know, and we've done that already this morning here uh, at the early service. Um, pretty soon, uh, Rick 
Rick might be at church by now. I'm not sure. Um, you know, but he'll be gathering in a church with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and you just kind of work your way through and they're all going to pray our father and just this, you know, this universal church and this hope that we all hold to in Jesus. I, I think that's a beautiful thing to be mindful of and, and to have in our, our prayers. You know, and so I thought that one was pretty good. All right. I want to remind you before we get into this next little chunk of Romans that Romans is one letter. You know, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome. Um, and uh, the way that we are, are going through this, you know, we're just taking these little chunks and we're looking really closely at these, these little bits and these little pieces and, and really teasing them apart. But at the same time, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. You know, there, there is very much um, a, a, a grand narrative that's going on in this book. Um, and these little pieces actually come together uh, into a larger whole that, that reveals an important message about the righteousness of God. And that's kind of the binding theme through the whole book. Oh, we learned this from Romans. The righteousness of God. This is one of the places that it's being told to us what the righteousness of God is really all about. Yeah. You know, so that, that works its way through the entire book. But sometimes when you look really closely, like in this passage, we're talking about sin and grace and, you know, life and death, you could, you could kind of lose the thread, so to speak. And we want to make sure that we don't lose the thread, that we remember, you know, what, that the, the, the bits that we're looking at are part of the whole thing. You know, um, and, and remember that this is about what God has done in order to redeem and save us. So... Uh, Romans six fifteen through 18, Paul continues, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So verse 15 takes us right back to verse 1 of chapter 6. Verse 1 was, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. He's just subtly coming at it similarly. Um, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Mm -hmm. So, so what's, what's the logic here? We're well, saved by grace. Right. So just keep on sinning and it's all going to be okay? <laughs> no. That, that seems to be you know, the thing that he's, he's saying to, to people. You know, that it seems that people are thinking that and he's confronting that. Okay. And, and I've talked about antinomianism in here before, um, uh, but uh, oh, this is that same idea rearing its head. Um, anti means against, nomos is law, and so it, it's a rejection of the law's authority. And in a large part, it rejects morality, or at least it rejects a standard of morality that the individual or group does not endorse. 
I've often found that antinomians are the most legalistic people in the world. Antinomians. So the antinomians are people who reject the law, but they become legalists in the sense that they set up their own rules that you must not violate. It's like that statement of people are judgmental. Don't you hate it when people are judgmental? <laughs> but I've just made a judgmental statement by saying that people are judgmental. <laughs> it's just whose rules are you glomming onto? Does that make sense? You think I'm just splitting hairs here? Or? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, I don't mind. <laughs> So I found this quote um, from a, a, a history of Christianity by, by Kenneth LaTourette. Um, he says, morally, the church is far from perfect. Some of those who wish to be regarded as Christians were adopting the attitude technically called antinomianism, uh, which was drawn from a misconception of man's response to God's grace, and which was to recur again and again throughout the centuries that the Christian need not be bound by any moral law. So the idea is, you know, I, I don't have to follow the morality because I'm forgiven. Except what, what happens is what Paul is talking about here. You know, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey. You know, either to sin, which leads to death, or to God, which leads to righteousness. And it's just a question of, of who is going to be in charge uh, of your life. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians is this amazing example of, of this reality. Paul served in Corinth, I want to say, for five years. Uh, preaching and teaching there. Paul moved around a lot. And there are only two places that he spent any significant amount of time, uh, Ephesus and Corinth. And um, so after he'd been in Corinth, he had to leave. He's writing to them because of the things he's hearing about what's going on there. Things that they were doing because they felt like they were free to do kind of whatever they want. So uh, I'll, give, I'll give the two most salacious of the, uh, the things that were going on there. Um, he mentions that there's a guy who has married his uh, father's wife. So probably, you know, his stepmom. And they were, you know, living together. And he's like, the pagans condemn that. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Uh, and they're like, you know, hey, this is fine. We're free. You know, gospel, do whatever we want. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> the other one uh, that, that was really kind of shocking, uh, he talks about the Lord's Supper. The, 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 the most detailed teaching that we have about the Lord's Supper comes from 1 Corinthians 13 because... When the Corinthians would get together, uh, apparently they, they celebrated the Lord's Supper as part of a larger meal. And uh, people would get there early to get started on the wine. 
And so they're there to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but there are some people who are getting drunk. There are other people who, who they get there and it's, they're not getting anything. And Paul's like, this should not be, you know, don't, don't do this. This is wrong. You know, and what I think kind of gets, gets lost sometimes when we talk about forgiveness is this idea that, you know, sin is a form of slavery. Righteousness is a gift that leads into a different kind of slavery. A slavery that leads to life. And this rings really uncomfortable for us as Americans. Right? We, we are really, un, you know, I'm free. You know, how much of the conversation uh, just around COVID goes back to what does it mean to be free? In some ways, just, I think that there are probably some logical fallacies that are involved there. But that being said, you know, there's this, this striving among us. I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. That's actually not the message of the scriptures. We're not free to do whatever we want. Because the things that we want tend to be sin. And our hearts need to be conformed and we need to be changed. So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at uh, Matthew chapter 23 um, and uh, looking at how Jesus deals with an interesting version of, of, uh, of this desire to be free and righteous by the things that we do and a uh, kind of strange form of, of, of what I'm talking about in terms of antinomianism where um, it basically leads to slavery to something else, okay? You know, you're just exchanging God's rules for your own is what it, what it ends up being. Very rarely are, are, are antinomians really truly what we might call libertine, you know, uh, where you just you feel free to do whatever you want and I'm not going to be offended and you're not going to be offended. Um, there, there are some things that I find fascinating about the, uh, the libertarian party here in America and, and there are some things that I, I find good about that, but then I'm like, but when you scratch the surface, there are some things that really don't work here. You know, so Jesus is confronting uh, his uh, his nemesis, uh, the Pharisees. They're always kind of in his face, and and he has a lot of conflict with them. And uh, and Jesus says to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. For they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Uh, phylacteries were... Have you ever seen a, um, a Hasidic Jew where they have like a box on their forehead? that, control, that um, contains a scroll of scripture in there. That's a phylactery. 
you know, it's, it goes back to Deuteronomy um, about letting your, uh, or tying my word to your doorposts and to your foreheads and your arms and, and other parts of your bodies. That's, but that's, that's what that is. Um, and the same thing with the fringes. Um, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best places in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what the Pharisees have basically done is they have placed their rules over God's word. Their rules, they would not recognize it like this, but in, in the way that they were acting, their rules have become more important than God's law. They're, in a sense, anti-nomian because they have replaced God's law with something different. Did they think they were enhancing God's laws? Yes. Because they're smarter than God? Well, I don't know that they would say it that crassly. Well, not say it that way, but right. that's kind of how they were thinking? I, I think that it started from a place of love, where they said, we want to protect people from breaking God's law. So if God's law says, here's the, the boundary line, let's just back that up a ways, so that you don't even get close to here, okay. in order to break God's law. He says, he starts talking directly to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte a, a, a convert. And when he becomes a, a, a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you as you are yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. And if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? The gold of the temple or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin. These are all these little teeny tiny seeds. They're like, you're, you're actually going to count them out and you're going to give 10% back. That's what a tithe is. You're going to tithe on these tiny seeds and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and, declare, and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he, he goes on to continue to, to confront them. Uh, the, the thing that I see here in, in terms of God's law is how people have this, this desire to put their own rules over God's. And so back to, to Romans 6, you know, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Is it truly right that we can just put our own rules in place or do God's laws still speak to, to how we live? And I think it's important to recognize that humanity and... Uh, I think most of us here are representatives of that race. Um, uh, we, we have this thing that draws us to putting our own rules above God's rules. So he confronts them with this idea of uh, neglecting the weightier matters. We want to focus on the things that we want to focus on, but God has given us some very weighty matters. Did, did you catch what they were? This was in the section yeah, about it was tithing. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, yeah. You know, justice is really largely about doing what's right. Well, who decides what's right? Well, God has told us some things about that. But it's not meant to be this crushing. My son texted me, I'm sorry. And then I'm like, why did he just text me my own name? <laughs> I, I, yeah, anyhow. Um, but even this justice, God is not just saying, you know, go out and do the right thing. It's also about mercy. How, how do you live with people who don't do the right thing? How do you do with people who, because of, the things that go on in their society don't actually experience justice. Who are coming at you from a place of brokenness. How, how, do, you, how do you react to people who are downtrodden? You know, um, I, I think about this, uh, this law in the Old Testament where they would harvest their fields except they would always leave the edges unharvested. And that was so that the poor could come and, and they could get some of that, that harvest. You know, that's an act of mercy. It's an act of providing for people who can't provide for themselves. Um, and, and faithfulness, you know, being faithful to God and to his word, being faithful to our neighbors. These, these are what he says are, are the weightier mat matters. 
And I think that it's interesting. He says, you know, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Because we become fixated on the things that, that we think matter instead of listening to what, what God is saying are, are the key things. There's a bunch of high schoolers coming through here. <laughs> what are you doing? Breaking and <laughs> I didn't see anything broken. We're entering. Can I have one of those cookies? They're not mine. <laughs> sure. You have to ask Mrs. Davis right You're here. Not mine. I don't know the freezer. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now watch, they'll all be back with the focus descending upon. Just take the plate. <laughs> um, so, when Jesus says, you know, that. Uh, um, you neglected the weightier matters. Does, is he saying that the other matters don't matter? You know. He's not saying that. No, he's he's not. But but he's saying you know keep your focus where it belongs. So people often tend to focus on the minor things, you know, things that we might call vices. Um, there's a great song from the '80s. Uh, by Adamant, um, where he says, you don't drink, don't smoke, what do you do? Subtle innuendo, must be something inside. Um, and by great song, it, yeah, that's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> it's catchy. It's it is very, very catchy. Because yes. now it's going through my head. Yeah, I will for the rest of the day. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, people write songs from something. You know, there, there is a philosophy. It, you know, so a child of the 80s, I listen to that music, and a lot of it is what we would mostly call bubblegum. It means nothing. But if you look at it, there are messages that are in there. Um, and uh, the 90s, they, they became kind of serious about that. There's a little bit more protest in, in kind of the, the grunge movement and became a little bit more political. The 60s, though, they were right on top of that and were were quite good at kind of the protests, um, music from you know, the Vietnam War and stuff. There's a lot of bubblegum and a lot of poppy stuff in, in the, the 60s as well. But, um, you know, there are messages, and not just political. There, there are messages about what's good and what's right and what's true. In, in this song, you know, he's saying you don't drink, you don't smoke. You know, so what is what is your actual sin? Uh, what, what is it that, you know is the thing that you know is actually at the heart of what's going on there but how many churches are really worked up about drinking and smoking and less worked up about things like i don't know human trafficking <laughs> you know they probably don't see the human trafficking like they see the smoking and the drinking and so the human trafficking is out there Right. And the drinking and smoking could be right here. Right. So I think that that's part of why they don't... That's part of it, but it's also, you know, you're looking at these things and saying, these are the things that are damnable. You know, smoking and drinking. Wow. There, there are much worse things happening in your community. In fact, um, I'm pretty sure that while I would say that smoking is not good for you, that it's not necessarily a sin. I would say that addiction to tobacco products 
um, because you're harming your body, then then you're talking about something that you know you're dealing with sin. Same thing with drinking. You know, we have brothers who say, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, no alcohol. You know, I always love talking with them about the wedding at Cana. No, it was just grape juice. I'm sorry, I've studied the etymology of those words, and uh, and they knew the difference between grape juice and wine. <laughs> yeah, and they would know the difference between the good grape juice and... <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And honestly, in the Middle East, in the first century, there was no such thing as grape juice. Because, I mean, basically, if you squash the grapes, if you drink it right then, you have grape juice. Otherwise, fermentation has begun. You know... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we tend tend to go from these these little vices to people who are then the, focus on the things that are obvious and the scandalous, what we might call big sins. But even here, these vary by by societal standards, and we tend to cherry pick which ones matter. You know, so you will find people who are very much up in arm about prostitution but could care less about corporate greed and both are wrong both victimize people both harm people you know so what, what's often missing in, the, in this whole conversation is the heart of the matter is actually love you know love that guides our, our relationship with with God that he loves us, comes to us. Love that guides our, our relationship with our neighbor. You know, my rights versus my neighbor's needs. You know, and, and thinking about, about those, those relationships and, and, and how does love inform how, how I deal with the people around me. And I, I think that sometimes what, what actually happens is that there's an idolatry and a, a wisdom that James talks about in our scripture reading today uh, for uh, the epistle lesson, uh, a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic that leads and guides us. That's probably my son. <laughs> um, it, and recognizing this about ourselves, that when we come into relationship with God's law, as forgiven people, that there is going to be a temptation to say, ah, I get to do whatever I want now. It's important to recognize that about ourselves. Um, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. You know, and it's true. You know, I mean, we might have fancier technology or, or whatever else, but when we talk about how people deal with people, how we live in relationship with God, we're just repeating the same mistakes that our, our, our forebearers made. But also clinging to the same hope that they had, that Christ has come to us to bring forgiveness and salvation. So looking at this, it, it seems to me that what Paul is putting before us are a couple of kinds of Christianity. One is a graceless Christianity, which leads to a type of, of legalism. And then there's a lawless type of Christianity, this 
antinomianism. Both are living and active in the church. Both are things that, that we are tempted toward. That, that we would just really condemn everybody and, and, and hold up this legal standard um, similar to what the, uh, the Pharisees did. A legal standard that's not actually rooted in God's law, but say these are the things that we expect. And then there's this lawless type of Christianity that Paul is identifying and saying, doesn't matter what you do. And Romans would teach us to reject both of these notions. That we would learn to live uh, in the freedom of, of the gospel, which is not a freedom to do whatever we want, but it's a freedom from uh, sin, death, and guilt, and a freedom found in, in Christ's love and forgiveness. It's a freedom to, to become not slaves, but to be obedient from the heart. And so as, as he asks this question, he says, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. So if we are obeying this temptation into sin, we are making ourselves slaves, even though we have been set free. But because we've been set free, we, we are also given God's spirit so that we can start to live in obedience. He says, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Catch that. There was a part of the law in the Old Testament uh, regarding slavery. Um, slavery, it's, it's always an, kind of an unsavory uh, topic for, for us. The idea that a, a person can own another person, um, it, it's, it's really offensive. And, and even in the Old Testament, when they had slaves, they were limited how long they could be slaves. And the idea being that, uh, uh, you know, these are people. They are not your property. And while they may have to obey you for a period of time, at the end of that period of time, they need to be set free. They need to be released because they are people, not property. However, there were also um, laws about how masters were to treat their slaves. And if a, a, a particular master was very good, with their slaves and kind, and they found that living arrangement to be good and acceptable, a person could come to the end of their time and decide, I want to stay here. And there were laws about a, an ear piercing and, you know, that would indicate that, you know, I bound myself to this person uh, for the rest of my life, to become a slave within this household for the rest of my life. But notice that that was something that was chosen by the person. It was an act of obedience because of the loving behavior of the master. And we find ourselves in a similar position that in sin, we, we are, are slaves to a master that hates and kills and destroys us. But now we've been set free set free and and what do you do with that freedom because pretty much you're going to go in one of two directions 
you're either going to go back to the things that you knew in sin. This is Proverbs, a dog returns to its vomit, right? Or out of love and you know just gratitude for what this one who has freed you has done, you're going to bind yourself to him. And that's that's what's that's what's being described here in Romans. It's a slavery, slaves of righteousness, but it's not a chattel slavery. It's not you have been, you know, forced into this and, and bound in it. It's one that has been chosen because of the love of the master. It, it's one that um, comes from the, the echo of having received love, loving in response. And, and that's, that's where, where Paul is leading us here, into a righteousness uh, of actions that's rooted in the love and salvation that Jesus has given to us. So. Makes me think of family. Okay. The uh, family that's not blood related. Okay. I mean, because that's probably how those slaves felt like they were part of the family, even though they had slave responsibilities or whatever work responsibilities and stuff. They probably still felt, and it, both ways, they probably yeah. felt family. Yeah. And that's love. That's, you know, that's. Absolutely. Well, any other comments or questions before we wrap up here? Then let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could be together today. We pray, Lord, that uh, that you would bless us in that we would hear your, your word and experience your love and forgiveness. And out of that love that you have poured out on us, that we would respond with loving obedience becoming slaves to righteousness, uh, knowing that we live in your love and forgiveness every day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.